Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the third chapter. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online. It's a a new schedule this weekend, and I want to apologize if you had a little bit of trouble getting on the parking lot or getting uh, your kids uh, deposited in Bibleopolis. First weekend, we had a whole lot more people come at 845 than what I thought we would, so uh, we knew there'd be a little bit of a learning curve with this, and we'll get it uh, worked out to where it's a little smoother. But we're rejoining uh, this weekend our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus. Uh, This is all about Jesus, and the reason why I decided to do this study was because I wanted the people in our church and anybody who might be a guest with us uh, each week to have the absolute best understanding of Jesus, who Jesus is, why He came, what He did, what He offers, the best possible understanding of Jesus that you can have. And uh, I can't think of a better way to do that than just uh, by working our way verse by verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. It'll take a while because this is 28 chapters long, but uh, I guarantee if you'll have, um, if you'll be committed to study, you'll end up with a deeper understanding of Jesus than you've ever had before. Now, <clears throat> the last time we were in Matthew, it was uh, during the Christmas season. We, I preached a message from Matthew chapter 2 called Four Views of Christmas and talked about how Herod had a view of hostility, how the religious leaders had a view of indifference, how uh, the wise men had a view of worship, and how all of us, the world, can have a view of hope. Uh, when it comes to Christmas, because the Christmas story is a story that's all about hope. But when Matthew chapter 2 ends, uh, we don't really have any information about Jesus until we get to Matthew chapter 3, and that period of time covers somewhere around 30 years. We don't know really anything about Jesus' life from right after His birth until He begins His earthly ministry, which is what we're going to see today. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. We get a couple of little glimpses from Luke's gospel. Luke tells us a story about Jesus uh, going to Jerusalem with his parents for the Passover and getting separated. And by the time they find out he's missing, they go back and they find him in the temple courts talking to the religious leaders. And remember, Luke tells us that the religious leaders were amazed and surprised at his questions and his understanding. And then Luke adds this verse in Luke 2.52. It says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men, which by the way is the theme verse for our children's ministry. We want that to be the reality for your kids and their participation here at Mount Pleasant. We want your kids to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. But other than that, we don't know anything about him. I'm not troubled by that. Jesus was growing up. He was learning how to be a carpenter. Probably at some point uh, in uh, that 30-year period, Joseph must have died because we don't read anything about Joseph. After that, we read about Jesus' mother Mary, but we don't read anything about Joseph. That wasn't uncommon for men in ancient days to die at a young age. But when we get to Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus on the cusp of beginning his earthly ministry. And so, having said that, let's not waste any time. I want you to stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. And I'm going to read our text, which is the entire chapter of Matthew 3. Now, I found out last night, everybody look up here, I realized last night that I made a big mistake by deciding to preach all the way through the third chapter of Matthew in one setting, okay? That was just, ah, that was my fault. So, what that means is, Once you sit down, buckle up, keep your hands and feet inside the chair at all times because we're going to go at lightning speed, okay? Here we go. You follow along. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. 
People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right, there it is. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You can be seated. I'm going to keep my approach really simple this morning. It's not going to be very clever, but I'm going to keep it really simple, and we're going to talk about two things. First of all, number one, right in your insert, these words, let's talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is hands down one of the most fascinating, important, and significant people in the story of Jesus' life. I don't have time to give you an extensive background on John the Baptist, so I'm going to give you a little bit of an assignment. Sometime later today or sometime later this week, I want you in your own personal time to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1 and read the story of John the Baptist's birth in Luke chapter 1. He was born to parents named Zachariah and Elizabeth, who up to that time uh, were told Elizabeth was barren. She had not been able to have any children. And John the Baptist was a special blessing from God. In fact, the most significant thing you'll find there is going to be Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. We'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. When the angel appeared to Zechariah to tell him about John the Baptist, this is what he said. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will, note this, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now, how significant do you think it would be for an angel of the Lord to show up to your dad and say about you, he or she will be great and will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of birth? That's a significant, incredible thing. John the Baptist was a very important character. He was prophetic. He was powerful. And uh, he, uh, we see that as we look at his brief life, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I'm going to tell you two things about John the Baptist that are revealed here in Matthew chapter 3. Write these down. The first one is this. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now skip down to verse 5. Verse 5 tells us the result. Verse 5 says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now look up here. What that means is that there were huge crowds that came out to see John the Baptist. When that, that geographic region that's described there where people came from, this, they were huge crowds. In fact, as I was studying this passage this past week, I read several places where commentators said that it wouldn't be beyond belief to think that John the Baptist possibly baptized tens of thousands of people during this period of time, during this 
this time in his ministry when he was preaching in the Judean desert. Now, what's interesting about that is nothing about the way John is described in this passage would make us think that he would have that kind of appeal and that we have that kind of popularity. I mean, first of all, uh, we think about his appearance. His clothes were made out of camel's hair. He, they were cinched at the waist with some kind of a, a leather band, and we're told that he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I had a camel hair sport coat when I was younger, and listen, it was sharp, and I looked sharp when I had that coat on. But this is a whole different deal we're talking about. This is just a pelt of camel's hair covering John from the shoulders to the ankles, cinched around the waist with a leather belt. He was not an appealing preacher in any way. He must have seemed a little bit like a wild man. And yet, people came out to hear him. The second reason why this surprised him is because he was not a touchy-feely preacher. He, he didn't go to any, any, any conferences or seminars where they said to him, you've got to relate to your audience. You've got to make them, you gotta make them like you. You've got to be soft and gentle. He stomped all over people's toes. He didn't care about hurting anybody's feelings. We read that passage there when the Pharisees, and the, well, well, just look back at it. Look back at verses 7 and 8 with me for a moment in Matthew 3. This is when he's baptizing people there in the Judean desert. And verse 7 says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he, was where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, is what he said. Now listen, Pharisees and Sadducees, I don't know if you know who they were, but they would have been like the absolute most religious people that you could find in that day. In fact, think about today. Just pause for a moment. Think of your mind. You think about the perspective of the world, maybe just think about from the perspective of the U.S., and, and you had to make a list of the most the people that seemed to be the most religious people that you can think of. I mean, people that seemed to be above reproach when it came to their righteousness or their religion or their relationship with God. You, you think about who that might be. That's basically who we're talking about here. The word Pharisee, the very word Pharisee in the original language in the New Testament means separate or separate ones, okay? So these guys were like way up there. Everybody looked at them in awe when it came to the idea of being religious. And John the Baptist basically looked at them and said, you're a bunch of snakes. That's what he said. And you have absolutely no real spiritual fruit in your lives. And yet, thousands and thousands of people were coming out to the Judean desert to listen to John the Baptist's message. Why? Because, friends, it was real and it was relevant. That's the thing. His message was real, and it was relevant. His message was simple. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, the word he uses for repent there is the Greek word metanaeo. I'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. Metanaeo. And you can see the definition there. The classic definition of the word repent in the New Testament is to change your mind. The practical implication, and we've talked about this before, so you should know this. The practical implication is to change your mind in a way that leads to a change of life. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. And so we often say that the word repent on the most practical level means to turn. But turn from what? Well, we usually associate repentance with sin. And so we say to repent means to turn from sin and turn to God. But notice that, Jesus, that John the Baptist doesn't say repent from sin. He just says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I don't want to be guilty of reading too much into this, and everybody listen to what I'm about to say. Certainly, I believe that an important part of this was he was telling them to repent of their sin. 
But I also have this sense that what John the Baptist was doing when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he was saying, turn away from the life you're living on your own so you can turn to the new life that God is about to bring. Because when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he was saying, repent because God is near, because God is coming and he's bringing something new. And so he said, you need to repent. You need to turn away from that old life where you're the one that's in charge. You're doing, you're making all the decisions. You're setting the pace for yourself. And you need to turn to this new life that God is bringing. This new life that's not about you. It's going to be all about him. And the result is, again, people came by the thousands. Now listen to me. That wouldn't have happened that would not have happened. People would not have come to him to hear him by the thousands if they didn't know or sense that there was something missing in their life. I've been a preacher for a long time. People don't come to hear you preach just because they don't have anything else to do. People come when they know there's a need. And so when it comes to preaching, this is what we need to remember. It's all about the message. It's not about the messenger. It's all about the message. Let me give you a second thing about John the Baptist I see here in Matthew 3 that's really significant, even though it might not seem like it in the beginning. John was baptizing Jews. That was really significant about this ministry there in the desert. John was baptizing Jews. Now, listen to me. Jews were familiar with baptism. Jews were familiar with the rite of baptism, right, R-I-T-E, the rite of baptism. But it was only, it was only, as far as they were concerned, for people who were converting to Judaism from some other religion. They were familiar with baptism when somebody from another religion came and wanted to convert to Judaism. And so when that happened, baptism symbolized for those people the washing away of their old life, the washing away of their sinful life, the washing away of their pagan life, and the acceptance of a new life as a child of the one true God. And so that's the way, that's the way Jews viewed baptism. It was somebody, something for somebody else who was converting from another religion to Judaism. But as far as they were concerned, they didn't need to be baptized because they were already children of the one true God. That's what Jews believed, remember? Because they were children of Abraham. Remember Abraham, we're told all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, was the father of the Jewish race. We've talked about this before. Remember I sang you the song, Father Abraham had many sons. We're not going to do it again. All right? And so they didn't think it was something that was necessary for them because they were already children of the one true God. John's message, however, was deeply convicting to them because his message was that we're all sinners and we're all in need of repentance no matter what our racial heritage might be. In fact, there back in Matthew chapter 3, right after he looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he called them a brood of vipers and he asked him, you know, why are you trying to flee the wrath that's to come? And he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance in verse 8. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen to me, you can't you can't think that just because you're Jews, just because you're, you can say that Abraham is our father, that your life is right with God and there's no need in your life. You can't put all your faith and all your trust and all your hope when it comes to having a right relationship with God on your heritage, on your lineage, on your family background. John was saying, listen, this is personal for all of us. This is personal for all of us. 
And that message was deeply convicting to those Jews who were coming to hear him preach. Why do you think it was? I think it was because there was an emptiness inside of them. They could say, yeah, we're children of Abraham. We're Jews. We're God's chosen people. But there was still an emptiness inside of them. I've encountered a lot of people over the years, and I'm, any pastor will tell you the same thing. You encounter a lot of people over the years who, you know, when you ask them, you, you ask spiritual questions, you try to discern uh, or diagnose the spiritual condition of their life, oftentimes they'll say, well, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a, and they'll name some kind of a, of a religious affiliation, or my family was Catholic, or my family were Baptists, or we grew up Methodist or something. So what are they doing? They're not talking about anything personal, are they? They're talking about a heritage. They're talking about a family background. But here's the deal. The scriptures say when it comes to having a right relationship with God, this is a personal issue, a personal issue for all of us. And that's why I believe those people were responding, those Jews were responding to this baptism. So what we need to understand is that more than anything else, John's baptism symbolized the reality of this need for repentance that he was preaching. And the people who responded to this message and were baptized were admitting that they had a need in their life. They were admitting, they were acknowledging the reality of sin in their life and a need to trust in God for their salvation, not trust in themselves or their heritage or their race, but trust in God for their salvation. Now, we can talk about this for a long time, but the bottom line is this. Those people who came, those Jews who came to the Judean desert and were baptized by John the Baptist demonstrated a deep level of honesty and a deep level of humility and a deep level of brokenness. A deep level of honesty, a deep level of humility, and a deep level of brokenness. And this is where it has to begin for all of us. I know we're talking about something that happened many, many years ago in a specific place for specific people. But I'm telling you this morning, if, you're not, if your life is not right, not right with God, if you just have this knowledge, this sense, this understanding, your life is not right with God, then, then this is where it begins. It begins by recognizing that need. And you have to be humble, and you have to be honest, and you have to embrace that brokenness. For anything to change. So let me just ask you this question, okay, real quickly before we move on. Let me ask all of you this question, and I'm just going to assume that the, the vast majority of you are people who are Christians. Um, I, I, I hope that you would always feel compelled to bring a friend with you to church who's not a believer, who's not a Christian, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that most of you are, and I'm going to ask you, you think back to that moment of your salvation, whenever it was for you. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old. I want you to think back to that moment of salvation for you, whenever it was. Let me ask you this question. Did you have an understanding at that moment of your brokenness and your need because that's where it listen to me has to begin that's where it has to begin for all of us we have to admit the need of our life before we can really be saved and that's what was happening in the Judean desert all right I want you to write down next to number two in your insert this morning this is a little bit of an unusual text here we're kind of transitioning uh, in Jesus's life to really begin his ministry uh, but uh, and so we're covering a lot of different things but and I'm trying to do it in as concise a way as possible but right down next to number two and this is not very creative we, we said number one let's talk about John the Baptist number two let's talk about Jesus and what I want to do is I want to use basically verses 7 through 17 to tell you three things that Jesus came in the world to do for all of us but before I do that and, and Jesus came in the world to do so much, and, and this is certainly not everything. That's why before I do that, I want to make sure and pause. Uh, I want to make sure and pause to, to, to make sure that we all know of the most important thing Jesus came in the world to do for all of us. And so look up here at me. Jesus came in the world to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Everybody say amen to that. 
That's the most important reason why Jesus came in the world. You know, I've told you, I've described that to you like this before. I've said, just imagine my left hand is my life. This is me. You can imagine it's your life for a moment. And just imagine that my Bible is actually a record book of sin. It's a record book of every single sin I've ever committed or a record book of every single sin you've ever committed in your life. If I take that record book of sin and I put it on top of my life, you don't even see me anymore. All you see is the reality of my sin. I'm completely covered up, defined, surrounded by my sin. This is the reality of my life. Sin defines my life. Well, let's imagine that my right hand represents God, and he's up in heaven, and he looks down at me, and the Bible says that God loves me with an everlasting love. He says he loves you with an everlasting love, every one of us. And what God wants more than anything in the world is to have a relationship with me, but he can't. Why? Because there's something that separates us from God. What is it? It's our sin. The Bible says there's nothing we can do about that sin on our own, no matter how hard we try or no matter how hard we work. We cannot overcome that sin on our own. You can't, I can't, no one can't. And so because God loves us so much, he did something about it for us. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and he came down into the world in the person of his unique son, Jesus Christ, and died on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, God, the Bible says, literally took all of our sin, placed it on Jesus, and from heaven punished Jesus in our place for our sin. And so now, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, there doesn't have to be anything that stands between us and God. Now, this is what Jesus came into the world to do. And I hope all of us understand that. And when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we can experience the reality of that forgiveness and have a right relationship with God. But Jesus did other things. He came to the world to do other things, to benefit and bless us and teach us and guide us in other ways. And I see three of them here in our text. So write this first one down. Jesus came to the world to give us power, to give us power. I think the way it's going to be on the screen is he will give you power. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you remember he, after he, he spoke some harsh words to them beginning in verse 7. Uh, then in verse 11, he says to them these words. He says, I baptize, I keep saying Jesus. When John the Baptist was speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said to, the, he said to them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So one of the things Jesus came in the world to do besides save us is to give us power, and he gives us power through the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I know, I know for a fact that most people, even a lot of Christians who've spent a lot of time in church, don't have a really good, solid understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. There's always a little bit of a mysterious aspect of the Holy Spirit, and teaching about the Holy Spirit can be wildly, wildly misused today. And so we need to understand. So I tried to find a way to make this really simple a long time ago. And when I think of the Holy Spirit, I think of four words. Four words that tell me everything that I need to know about the Holy Spirit. I've got them written down in the back of my Bible right here so that I'll never forget them because sometimes I forget things. How about you? Sometimes I got to go back to remind myself what I believe about certain things. No, I'm just kidding. But sometimes my, I'm forgetful. So, and this, listen, there's not sinful to write in your Bible, everybody. You're not going to sacrifice your salvation or be on the back row in heaven or anything like that just because you wrote in your Bible. So here's the four words. The first word is the word person. The Holy Spirit is a person, not just some divine force. He's not just some swoo spirit like we think of. He's a person. And I say that because every time the Holy Spirit is referenced in the Scriptures, He's referenced as a He, as a He. For example, in John 15, 26, Jesus was talking to the disciples about the fact that He was going to go away. And one of the things that meant is that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And He literally says to them in, in the latter part of verse 26 of John 15 about the Holy Spirit, He will testify about Me. Now, that's just one example of the way the Holy Spirit's referenced. He's a person. He's a person. The second word is part. 
The second word is part. Number one, person. Number two, part. What I mean by that is the Holy Spirit, we need to understand, is a part of what we call the Trinity. Now, everybody look up here at me. Okay, the Trinity is a word that Christians use to describe the biblical truth that there's one God who exists at all times in three persons. And who, who are those three persons? God the Father, God the Son, and say it with me, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what you need to understand. You can't find that word Trinity in the Bible anywhere, okay? This is a concept that, this is a word that Christians developed, a, a doctrinal or a theologic word that Christians developed to describe this reality of a triune God, one God who exists at all times in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the reason why there's that understanding is because all throughout the Bible, you, you read about the three of them. For example, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, go and make disciples of all nations. You remember what he said next? He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, say it with me, Holy Spirit. And this is how we understand the reality of the triune nature of God, the reality of the Trinity. He's a part of that, okay? The Holy Spirit is God. Just like Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Here's the third word. The third word is promise. The Holy Spirit is a promise to every believer, to every Christian. So we're talking about the record book of sin. We're talking about the truth that Jesus took our place. He took our sin on the cross. God punished him in our place for our sin when he was on the cross. And so because of that now, look at me. If we put our faith and our trust in Christ, we can have our sin forgiven and nothing stands between us and God. And a part, that's, that's what we call salvation. And a part of our salvation experience is receiving the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit because he's a promise to all of us. Acts 2.38 and when the, the very, when the church began, when the very first gospel sermon about Jesus had ever been preached, the people were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we need to do? Peter was preaching, and Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's a promise to all of us. You received the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian. Don't let anybody tell you different, okay? All right, the fourth word is the word power. It's the word power. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives to give us power, to give us the power to live the Christian life. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever think that you can't do things on your own? How about every day? Every day. We've got trials. We've got burdens. We've got heartaches. We face losses. We have challenges. We think, I can't do this on my own. Well, the good news is if you're a Christian, you don't have to because you have the power of God living inside of you, directly inside of you through the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. The, he's the fulfillment of the promise. And so Jesus came. When he says to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he, he's telling, giving us a promise of power. See, this was different in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came upon somebody, it was selective and it was temporary. That was what, how it's described in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was, his, his, his presence was selective and it was temporary. So we read stories about uh, passages where it says, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, but only at a certain time for a certain period of time to accomplish something. But when Jesus, when John the Baptist says that Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that's a whole different thing. He's talking about something more permanent. The word baptize is the Greek word baptizo, and it literally means to immerse. We're talking about being drenched and saturated. That's why we practice baptism by immersion here at Mount Pleasant. One of the reasons why, because that's literally what the word means. And so we're talking about something that completely drenches you and saturates you and covers you, and that's what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into your life and he gives you power. 
In fact, Jesus said to the disciples, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and you will receive power. And I, I, I know that. I believe that. I've experienced that in my life. I've been in so many situations almost daily where I have a moment where I say, I might say a, a quiet, silent prayer to myself, and I'll say, Holy Spirit, please help me. Holy Spirit, please give me the strength for this. Holy Spirit, please bring to mind the words that I need to use because he lives inside of me, and he gives me power. All right. The second thing that Jesus came to do, according to here, as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 3, he didn't just come to give us power, but we're told here that he, that he came to separate. He came to separate. Now, let's just talk about this for a minute. <clears throat> Back in verse 11, again, when John the Baptist is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We just talked about that. And then he says, and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's he talking about when he's saying that Jesus is going to baptize with fire? Well, some people think that represents, represents cleansing or purifying because that's one of the way fire is described in the Bible as a cleansing and a purifying element. But I think uh, the better understanding, especially in the context of Matthew 3, is that he's using fire as a reference to judgment. When he says that Jesus is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire... He's talking about judgment. Now, why do I believe that? Well, I believe that because if you look back at Matthew 3.11, you see that the preceding verse and the following verse both use fire as a reference for judgment. Look at it. Verse 10, the preceding verse, John the Baptist says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the what? Say it with me. Fire. And then you have our verse, and verse 12, the following verse says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, we try to understand the Bible in context, and so if the preceding verse talks about fire as judgment, the following verse talks about fire as judgment, why wouldn't we think that the, that the middle verse wouldn't be referring to judgment as well? And the winnowing fork, you know what? When farmers harvested grain... Uh, there would be impurities in grain, and the impurities would be called chaff, and a farmer would use a winnowing fork. It was like a big shovel. He would scoop it up, and he would throw it up in the air. And because grain was heavy, it would fall to the ground, and because chaff was light, it would usually just be blown away by the wind. But John is saying that there would be a time when the farmer would gather all the grain and store it in his barn and gather all the chaff and burn it up with unquenchable fire. Here's the bottom line. Listen to me close, because this... This is, not a, this is not a positive, feel-good message right here. Let me tell you what Matthew is telling us that Jesus came to do. John is revealing this to us as he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He came to separate. That's what Jesus did. He came to separate the good from the bad, the clean from the unclean, the righteous from the unrighteous, whatever words you want to use. Now, that's not a message anybody wants to hear today because we, we want to be affirming of everybody. We want to say everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, everybody's good, doesn't matter what you believe or how you live your life or anything like that. We want to affirm everything. But Jesus separates. He separates. And any, any, any church you go to, any preacher you listen to that tries to tell you otherwise is not worth, is not worth attending and not worth listening to. Jesus came to separate. Not everybody who says that they're a Christian is. Not everyone is. And Jesus came to separate. 
All right, let me give you one more thing that uh, we're told here that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give us an example to follow. All right, he came to give us an example to follow. And we see this beginning in verse 13 when Jesus comes and wants to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, why? Because John the Baptist's baptism was a, was a, a baptism of repentance, which we already established. Meaning, it means to change your mind, which leads to changing your life. Well, Jesus didn't need to change his life. He was perfect. Jesus, Jesus wasn't going the wrong direction in his life. Jesus didn't have any sin in his life. The Bible tells us over and over again in a variety of places that Jesus was without sin His entire life was without sin. So why would he need to be baptized? Even John the Baptist saw the contradiction of that and said, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus looks at John the Baptist, and in verse 15, he says, says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm going to tell you three reasons why Jesus was baptized. First, he was baptized to identify with sinful man. It's just that simple. Jesus was baptized as a way to identify with sinners because Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Now, I don't know how that affects you, but that moves my heart deeply to think that Jesus loves us so much that he wanted to identify with us in every single way, and that began with wanting to identify with us as sinners through baptism. Not because he was a sinner. This is about identification, but just saying, I'm here as one of you. Now, one day Jesus would take our sin when he died on the cross, but he, didn't, he wasn't baptized because he was a sinner, just because he wanted to identify with sinners. Second, and this is going to come up different on the screen, but let me just say it like this. Jesus was baptized as an example of obedience for all of us. So I don't like the way I wrote it on the PowerPoint. Just write that down. Jesus was baptized as an example of obedience for all of us. You know, I hate the fact that people get bogged down with, the, with arguments about baptism. I can't tell you how many arguments, not arguments, how many discussions and debates I've been involved with people over the years about baptism. Why, why are you baptized? What's the, what's the meaning of baptism? What's the proper method of baptism? Will, I go to, will somebody go to heaven if they've never been baptized? It's just on and on and on, blah, blah, blah. It's like that. I get tired of it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Kind of just kidding. Anyway. Anyway, I, I, just, I, just, I just hate it. Listen, here's where that's coming from. I just hate it that baptism is a point of, of tension for so many people because it really doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. The Bible tells us, listen, the Bible tells us without question that we are saved by faith. Everyone say amen to that. The Bible says we are saved by faith. But we need to understand that the Bible makes it clear that that saving faith expresses itself, that, that, that we express that faith in different ways. For example, we express the reality of that saving faith in repentance, in the action of being willing to turn away from sin and turn to God. We express that saving faith in the action of a baptism by being willing to obey the command to be baptized. We express that saving faith by being willing to confess our faith in Christ, in Christ by being willing to say out loud, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by saying, saying, I I want him to be the Lord of my life. These are all ways that we express our faith. They're not things that are separate from our faith. Repentance isn't separate from our faith. Um, It's it's just our faith expressed in the action of turning away from sin. Baptism isn't separate from our faith. It's it's our faith expressed in the obedience of following the God-ordained, God-chosen command to be baptized. Confession isn't separate from our faith. It's our faith spoken out loud, and that's how it needs to be understood. Baptism, your baptism should be for 
for you one of the most precious moments and memories of your life because it's that moment when you were symbolically joined together with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Nobody is saved solely by the act of being baptized because nobody is saved by a ceremony. But baptism perfectly represents what does save us, that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Somebody say amen to that. And baptism shouldn't be a point of contention for anybody. It should just be an expression of obedience for all of us. One that we choose for ourselves. And that's what we need to understand. And that's what Jesus did when he was baptized. The third thing that this baptism did, the third reason why Jesus was baptized, because it was the public initiation of his ministry. He went down in the water. He was baptized by John the Baptist. When he came up out of the water, the sky opened, uh, the Spirit of God descended, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And with those words, God made it clear, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the way. Something Jesus affirmed later in his ministry in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, Brian, come on out. We need to bring this to a close. Thanks so much for listening to me as I go through that. It was a longer passage than what we normally do, but we needed to transition and get to where Jesus begins his ministry. But as we get ready to close this part of our service, just let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a pointed question. Every one of you here in this room, everybody listening to me online, everyone, is your life right with God? I mean, as you, as, you, as you begin 2017, do you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying are you a good person or a bad person. I'm not saying, you know, anything about the morality of your life or the good works of your lives. I'm talking about this on a deeper level. Is your life, is your heart right with God? Because you had that honest, humble, broken moment where you realized that you can't, you can't be right with him on your own. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus, who's our Savior.